VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? And that's when that generation goes from amateur hobbyists to entrepreneurs, founders, and creators. Zuckerberg was a child of 90s IRC message boards. In his early 20s, founds Facebook. Evan Spiegel, the founder of Snapchat, a child of the mobile communication era, yep. who then reinvents it. What we're just getting to, probably two, three years from now, is their next generation of creators. Those who grew up with an iPad in hand, grew up meeting and expanding their social network in virtual worlds, who now say, that's great. I've been using quote unquote metaverse products created by those who long predated it. Now I'm going to create for my peers. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson. Thank you, as ever, for tuning in. We have a very special one for you this week, and it's all about the metaverse. That's right. Now, if you're like me, you're super skeptical about this whole idea. I mean, really, do we actually need or even want this idea of a an immersive virtual world online where we theoretically live, work, play, find partners, etc. I mean, since Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, really popularized this idea last year, I've just really struggled to see why or how it would come to be. And instead, my bet was that, you know, this could just end up being one of those things that despite the billions of dollars and brain power going toward it, it just kind of fizzles. It just doesn't work out. So that was my bias going in to my conversation with this week's guest, who is Matthew Ball. Matthew is a very busy man. He's an angel investor. He is a venture partner at Makers Fund. Before that, he was global head of strategy for Amazon Studios, so just overseeing how billions of dollars was spent on all kinds of content using data to inform that. Before that, he was at the Chernin Group, uh, the inter- entertainment company of Peter Chernin, who used to run... 20th Century Fox. So he's just a very busy man, but he's also a prolific writer about technology, about media, um, and of course, the metaverse. And he has just published a book called The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. Now, this, of course, is why I want to have him on, because he's very thoughtful about just how technology evolves. And clearly, he has a thesis that the metaverse will be extremely real, extremely disruptive. Uh, just not 
perhaps in the way that Mark Zuckerberg or anyone else expects. So that is what I have him on to talk about. And I'll just say whether you're metaverse interested or not, it's worth listening because I think a lot of the insights he has around how technology evolves and changes industries and changes society and interplays with culture, it's true not to just about the metaverse and whether it may or may come to be, but also just where we have got to up to this point. So I think you really enjoy get a lot out of it. Uh, it's a really fun conversation. So without further ado, I will hand you over to my conversation with Matthew Ball, author of The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. Enjoy. So I've got the book here. I've got a bunch on the ground. I'm sure. I haven't I haven't picked up the energy to to, to remove them from where they <laughs> fell. But thank you. So we can just dive right in. I'm very excited to have you on because I've followed your writings on all things metaverse and kind of more broadly content streaming, etc. for a while. And I saw you coming out with this book. For those who don't know, it's called The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. And so I guess like very high level, why did you write the book? Because it, for me, why I want to have you on is like, you know, it's this thing that all of a sudden appeared. Like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is going to be a thing. That's the metaverse. It's what Meta's changing. It's Facebook's changing its name, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody's still kind of a bit like um, glassy eyed, like what is this thing? But you've written this whole book about it, and, I, and you've been thinking about this for a while and investing in this world, you know, kind of preparing for this. So I'd love to just get your take of just high level. Why'd you write the book? So you've kind of answered the question. <laughs> the metaverse is a 30-year-old term, 1992, Neil Stevenson's yeah. snow crash. But it's a century-old idea. People have thought about it, tried to build it for decades. And we can certainly see antecedents. We're not wrong to say, isn't Second Life a lot of this? Yeah. But of course, the Apple Newton was a lot of the iPhone 15 years earlier, yep. a tablet that didn't quite work. The technology was not ready. I wrote this book because I believe the time is nigh. I started writing it before Facebook changed its name, mm -hmm. but after the topic started to bubble up, it's a reflection of five years working, learning, writing, reading about the metaverse. But it's inspired by the idea that this is of incredible importance. And the more people who understand it, who can contribute to it, either as a voter, consumer, developer, advocate, the better. Right. So it's, it's really interesting that you talk about this is not a new concept. And listeners to this program will be very familiar with um, Second Life because we've had Philip Rosedale on this program a couple times. And he was talking 20 years ago. He's the founder of Second Life, of course. And he's like, you know, he was in the press saying 20 years ago, a billion people are going to be on Second Life. This is going to be the new way that people kind of exist, interact, work, meet each other, etc. And, you know, today it's used by a million people. It didn't quite work. So how much of this is about, which kind of gets to, you know, a big chunk of your book, which is kind of three parts. What is the metaverse? How do you build it? And why it's going to change everything? That middle section is the important bit. How do you build it? And how much of that is down to just, you know, when you started Second Life 20 years ago, we were kind of technologically like, you know, cavemen just discovering fire. That's quite right. And I start, actually, I might say 
Second Life is not when we've discovered fire. That probably started <laughs> in the 1950s, 1970s. Yeah. Second Life is when we've figured out how to make a fire to heat a cave. That probably mm -hmm. sounds pejorative. I actually think Second Life is incredibly developed. Yeah. It had so many more emergent behaviors than today's platforms are. And so in that regard, it's actually more organic and interesting to look at. But what I mean is the technologies it relied upon were not as widely distributed. They weren't as powerful. Yeah. The number of people online were far fewer. Our sophistication with digital technology was not nearly what it is today. And so while many look at the metaverse and say, didn't we do the Second Life thing? I remember it on the magazine covers and yeah. so forth. There are more people using Roblox this minute than the peak monthly active users of Second Life. Yep. In the average day, 55 million people log on, spending two and a half hours each. In the average month, we have over 250 million users. And there are multiple other platforms, not as large as Roblox, but similar to it. We've seen step functions in time, in reach, in the number of devices it runs on, in its cultural impact, and its usage. That arc, drawn out from the 50s, 70s, through Second Life, to today, mm. looking forward, is where I have, in part, the audacity to say how the metaverse will revolutionize everything, rather than why 3D simulations and worlds will be a fun thing we can do on the net. Right. Let's talk about that. So, because you have people like Jensen Wang at NVIDIA saying the metaverse economy will be bigger than the physical world economy today. And there was, uh, when I was reading one of the numbers that jumped out at me, which I found quite surprising, was that I think it was last year you said $100 billion has been spent on kind of virtual goods, whether that's skins in Fortnite or Robux and Roblox or whatever it may be. And $100 billion, that's real money already. That's quite right. Now, when you take a look at the hundreds of millions of people who use, say, a Battle Royale game yeah. each day, PUBG Mobile, Free Fire, the most popular title globally, Fortnite and others, it's actually relatively modest. We have far more reach than we have revenue. But that's partly because the cultural significance of these worlds, just on the consumer leisure side, we can talk about enterprise and industrial applications of these technologies. But the cultural significance is growing rapidly. Fortnite says that their third most successful, at least financially, season was the one with Travis Scott, a mm. concert enjoyed by 30 million people. Right. The second most successful was the Star Wars season, which, by the way, integrated directly into the opening crawl of the rise of Skywalker. Right. And so while there's an enormous quantum being spent today, again, we're looking at growth in all underlying metrics, revenue, users, time, cultural impact, power, the simplicity of creation. And so what does that evolution or that revolution look like? Because if you go back to what, and this is where I think a lot of people get stuck, is you have Mark Zuckerberg come out last year and say, you know, we're going to be a metaverse company. We're going to spend $10 billion a year on this. This is the future. This is the successor to the mobile internet. And I am going to make it so. I, Emperor Mark Zuckerberg, I'm going to make it so for you, the rest of the world. And it's just kind of like, well, that just seems like an impossibility. That seems like a leap that nobody can quite get their heads around. But from reading, it feels like what you're saying is, 
we have lots of different strands, both culturally and technologically, that at some point are going to converge and all of a sudden we're going to have an internet that does look very different than what we experience today. Is that fair? Totally. I think we often, and by we, I primarily mean pop culture and us as individuals, think about and consider often distill a technological era into a specific company or Mm -hmm. product. The iPhone is for millions, the internet. Facebook is for millions, the internet. Billions. Totally. And what Meta seems to be trying to do is be that to the next generation. Why? Because they might have the most advanced new generation immersive hardware. They have the Horizon Worlds platform, which they hope to be to Roblox, what Roblox is to Second Life, Mm. connecting billions, to your point. Right. But it's a reflection of an ecosystem of innovations. They're reliant, for example, on what Qualcomm produces, what NVIDIA produces, the broadband that's deployed. I actually find it really inspiring that much though we think individuals are pioneering the next era in, which they are, Mm -hmm. they actually still have to work in concert with this enormous ecosystem around them. And so there's tension directly, meta versus, say, Roblox, But there's also tension up and down the value chain as networks and computing providers and middleware also fight to influence that end-to-end chain. That two dimensions of competition is really helpful and healthy. Right. And so when you say, I don't know if you can paint a picture, when you say this is going to revolutionize everything, again, people's eyes kind of glaze over. They're like, okay, I'll take your word for it. I have no idea what that means. You know, so when we talk about this world of the metaverse, what does that look like? How does that manifest itself in the ways that are different from what we experience today? So it's such a fun question. And throughout the book, I try to do my best and truly most honest way of framing that, which is to say we have to first consider the fundamental changes. And the reason why I say this is the metaverse is understood as a fourth era of computing, the first mainframe, the second personal computing in the Internet, the third mobile and cloud. Almost no one who had a technical understanding of each wave, resources, engineers, cash, could clearly predict what was to come. It's why Microsoft is irrelevant in its core market when it comes to mobile phones. No hardware, no operating system. It's why IBM is a name that very few people ever think of. And that's because there was no understanding of the technical premises or even the broad strokes of the future that allowed you to understand TikTok or Snapchat, Facebook, Even products like Salesforce, which seems so obvious now, but weren't. Yeah. And so what I focus on is first, the idea that every time those eras shift, we see fundamental transformations in who accesses computing and networking resources, where, when, why, and how. And they use it to solve problems that previously eluded us and newly emerge. Mm. Now, I'm still being evasive. (laughs) But there are some specific use cases that we can see. 3D simulation is being used to operate large infrastructure, Hmm. real estate development, airports around the world. Surgery is now being performed in XR. Of course, we have hundreds of millions of people interacting in simulations of interconnected worlds, such as Roblox and others, 80 million worlds. And then we have cars that are actually using their LiDAR scanners, not just to understand what's beside them for autonomous driving, 
but to scan the world around them, to interconnect into publicly available resources. And then you can actually, using the very same technology you use in a video game, pre-drive your car over the terrain in front of you. Your Land Rover can say, here's the gap, the fjord, the environment, the rock, drive it, and then drive it. Right. And when you say the time is nigh, which, by the way, I love the word nigh. It's heavily <laughs> underused. Um, how much of that is technological and how much of that is cultural? Because when you go back to the idea of spending $100 billion on digital goods, people around the world, that's mostly, I haven't dug into those numbers. I'm going to hazard a guess that most of those people are young people people who have kind of grown up like the first kind of fully online generation. Like I'm 45. I grew up, I didn't get the, really the internet basically until college, but you know, kind of digitally native folks who have like, you know, my kid is my older child is five. He tries to swipe the TV screen. You know, he's just kind of his whole understanding of technology and how he interacts with it is wildly different than mine. So how much of it is about just, the technology as much as the, the who was growing up at that uh, up in this world and like you know the idea of spending 10 or 20 or 100 bucks on skins in Fortnite is not a thing it's just kind of what you do so i think you're talking about a really important pair of observations or trends or dependencies which we often focus on just the former the tech hmm. look ultimately this fundamental idea of when it's practical to invest does start with whether or not you can build the thing. Yeah. You just couldn't pull this off in the 70s or even 90s. And so it didn't matter whether or not humans were, in some instance, cognitively, socially, experientially ready for it. But at the same time, the technology is usually available long before it's put to work. Facebook could have been built before it was in 2004. It was not that technologically intensive. And so we usually have this other effect. You talk about young people interacting with the world differently. I think about these three different hitches. The first is when technology is possible and a product, a critical product is made, the iPad, Facebook, AOL. Mm -hmm. The second is when you see the generation that is native to that technology begin to become active consumers of it. It's not you putting your kid in front of a Roku. It's your kid using the Roku. Yep. That's where we were about 10 years ago with millennials and YouTube. And it's where we are now with Gen Z and Gen Alpha with Roblox and Minecraft. The third hitch, however, is where we see the most transformative impact. And that's when that generation goes from amateur hobbyists to entrepreneurs, founders, and creators. Zuckerberg was a child of 90s IRC message boards. In his early 20s, founds Facebook. Evan Spiegel, the founder of Snapchat, a child of the mobile communication era, yep. who then reinvents it. What we're just getting to, probably two, three years from now, is their next generation of creators, those who grew up with an iPad in hand, grew up meeting and expanding their social network in virtual worlds, who now say, that's great. I've been using quote unquote metaverse products created by those who long predated it. Now I'm going to create for my peers. 
And so when we talk about the metaverse, you talk about the technological capabilities of actually being able to kind of create the thing. What is the thing? And I can't remember the the very detailed description. I'm sure you've said it a million times now on various different interviews for the book. But what is the defining thing of the metaverse and why is it possible now when it wasn't possible before? What is the kind of what when we go back to that idea of the time being nigh, why technologically? So I describe the metaverse as a massively scaled and interoperable network of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds, which can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an effectively unlimited number of people, each with an individual sense of presence. What I'm essentially describing is a parallel plane of existence, which all of us can participate in at the same time, and which has memory, which some would say is required for persistent identity. Right. Why is it possible now? Look, that full description is not possible. But what we generally observe is that over the past few years, we have reached a critical tipping point where enough of those technologies exist to have incredibly popular, arguably monocultural experiences and proto-metaverses, if you will, Mm -hmm. and where we can start to chart that trajectory. Now, if you take a look at mobile, it unfolded over decades, but think about it as follows. It took until 3G, really, for most of us to consider the mobile internet usable. Now, we needed a device for that. And 3G was what year-ish, roughly? 2005. It comes to the iPhone in 2008. The 2007 iPhone was 2G only. And then, of course, 4G allows us to do video. That's a huge leap up. But it was really 3G where we said we hit min-spec so to speak. Mm -hmm. The analogy here, and again, I'm confusing different technologies, and again, it's an ecosystem, is we probably think that around 2015, 2016, we hit that early 3G point. And that's why you saw hundreds of millions of people moving to these environments. Right. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop... iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I'm just thinking about the evolution again, of technology. So where we are today, thinking about this, you know, because it it does feel like, you know, going back to the Zuckerberg example of like, I will make it so. The reality is that this is just, you know, everybody's standing on the shoulders of those before them. And I'm thinking about, and this, you can tell me whether this is off base, but I was thinking about TikTok 
and how different that is to core Facebook or core Instagram. You go on Instagram, and I know they're trying to copy TikTok, but Instagram looks very antique isn't the word, but it's just a lot less. It's just like, oh, now that I've seen TikTok, why would I ever go back to Instagram, which is just far less dynamic and interesting? And it just all of a sudden like makes these things that were the thing look old. And it just feels like it's getting more and more, and it is in a more an immersive video experience. And I can imagine the next iteration being something that's even more immersive, and then you get into 3D, etc. You're quite right. And I think one of the things that's shocking about the last, you know, two decades in particular, is the degree to which we constantly think solved problems aren't solved. Mm. And usually new devices, new mediums illuminate that, but in ways we don't expect. My favorite is to talk about online dating. If you go back to 2007, 2008, we believed it was a solved problem. And what was the answer? You go to Match.com or eHarmony. You spend two hours filling out 300 questions. And by the way, some of the questions were just designed to control against yourself. Let's ask you the same thing 80 questions later, an hour and a half later, and see whether or not you have the same response and you just don't realize Mm. you've differed. Now, what was the answer to dating? Well, we don't know permanently, but we know that in mobile, which massively expanded the market, it was the reverse. The average man assesses a match in three and a half seconds. The average woman in seven and a half seconds. Right. It's not a long considered discussion. It's a quick decision. It's not based on intellectual input and personality observation. It is based on image. It's seeing someone at the bar and instantly being like, oh, I want to go talk. Totally. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, this is order of operations. Those things still matter. But the answer was we kind of come PhD first. Right. And of course, in mobile, we determined what you did, which is it's heart, it's arousal. It's all of these more guttural instincts. Now, what does that mean for the metaverse? Well, I think you can easily come to the conclusion We used to have text forms we filled out. Then we went to images. Is it avatars? It's probably not. That's probably a good example of too linear thinking. Yeah. But exactly how does 3D immersive change a category that, again, we think is solved? Time will tell. Do you, just as a total aside, in Horizons, you know, Facebook's, or sorry, Meta's metaverse kind of attempt, why does no one have any legs? Is there a technological reason for that? Or is that just a design choice? It just seems weird to me. They're just like floating torsos. So this is this is a lot of fun. So firstly, Facebook has announced that legs are going to be coming to most environments. <laughs> legs are coming. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is this likely reflects the design choices of what do you optimize for? Mm. I can tell you why legs don't exist. And that illuminates why they decided legs should exist. When you put on an Oculus device, they have an external facing camera. Yeah. And that camera is used to figure out where your hands are. Sometimes, not all the time. It's very hard for cameras on your head to know where your legs are. They know where your arms are. Right. But are you sitting or standing? Are you sitting with your legs out or your legs tucked in? Are you upright or reclined? And what happens is that we as humans have a really tough time maintaining the immersion, the connection of your brain with your embodied self, when there's disagreement. If you see yourself sitting down or with your legs 
straight or tucked at a 90 degree angle, but your avatar shows you not that way, mm. we start to reject it. Right. And so a common answer in design generally is when not certain we discard. For context, eHarmony or Match, I can't remember which one it was, if they didn't feel confident enough in their ability to match you, they denied you from the system. They'd rather tell you no than to disappoint you because you then end up telling others it didn't work for you. Right. And so Meta has said, we can't reliably enough judge your legs, so let's skip them. They seem to have since come to the conclusion that while that's important for your self-recognition, you find others eerie without them. And so they've swung on their UI bet. Right, right. And that, this is another important point, which gets to the, the technological side of things, which is, you know, how are we going to access the metaverse in whatever form it comes to be? Because I think a lot of people, especially because, you know, in most people's minds, you know, it's either Facebook is talking about it, or maybe you've heard something from Roblox or whatever, but the kind of idea is... I need to have a VR headset. I need to have this thing on my face. And that, again, is another blocker. And I think for a lot of people of like, you know, even like tech people are just like, oh, I don't I don't think the metaverse is going to take off because I don't want to wear this thing on my face. And especially talking to folks like Philip Rosedale, he was saying, you know, VR headsets are much more like men don't mind them. Women do. Because all of a sudden... One, it kind of, um, I guess there's more issues with their kind of it causes nausea more often. And also mm -hmm. it, it closes, it effectively blindfolds you in a room, which as a woman is not something, is not a place many feel comfortable. So just this idea of, is that what this is going to look like? Because I think for a lot of people, this, this popular idea of the metaverse, they stop and they're like, well, I'm just not going to put a big old rig on my face. So it's a good question. Look, the technology is nowhere near where we need it to be to hit what we consider to be min spec. You'll notice I used a bunch of modifiers there. Yeah. And that's actually deliberate because we've typically underestimated it. This is why the timeline for these devices keeps kicking out. Mark said, Zuckerberg said in 2015, by the end of the decade, we'll replace the smartphone with wearables. That, that was not a rare view. He was particularly declarative, yeah. but we don't exactly know what specs are required to avoid nausea. We don't know what specs are required to replace your smartphone, at least some of the time. And we don't know what the trade-off will want to make between those wearable devices, to your point, to justify what we lose when we use them. Fashion, mm. comfort, weight, security. And so we don't know, but what we do know is that billions of people spend time in 3D virtual worlds without them. VR and AR devices may be important ways of extending what we do, improving certain interfaces, but they don't seem to be, or the lack of them, doesn't seem to be an impediment today. Neil Stevenson said the other day on Twitter, his metaverse was pretty architected around AR and VR, not exclusively, but pretty. And he highlights that was a reasonable assumption in the late 80s, early 90s. How could you imagine at a point in time in which there was fewer than 10 million Americans ever connecting to the internet, that billions of people would go into virtual worlds through a desktop? Yeah. It turns out that WASD, the keys on your keyboard to go forward, back, right, and left, and a touch screen, which of course you half obscure with your hands when you use it, were good enough, at least for a billion or two. 
And so it does seem like that technical requirement isn't strict, even if it's hard to solve. So when you talk about this defining characteristic of it being 3D, then what does that mean if you're not having this kind of effectively in, you know, don't have an Oculus on your face? How is what you're doing differentiated from, you know, what I'm looking at my computer right now? Well, so let's keep in mind, virtual reality really refers to any computer-generated and simulated world. That can be in 2D. That's virtual reality. It's literally a reality that is virtual. Yep. It can, frankly, be in 2.5D, which is when you have a fixed camera so that it spoofs dimensions. It can be an augmented reality. It can be in 3D. When you're talking about virtual reality as it's commonly used, which is immersive virtual reality, primarily through a headset, the technology is the same. You're looking at two different video screens, not entirely unlike watching a 3D movie. Mm. And so the tech isn't different. The input is different. Why? Because you're now rejecting other senses and other input information. This is Philip Rosedale's point. Yeah. And you now can interact left and right by moving your head rather than just a joystick. The question of how do I want to move left and right? What other sensory information do I want? Is a choice, not a requirement. Right. Going back to where we started, what, so what if it can be boiled down, and I don't know if it can be, why do you think you know the time is near? Is it a mix of all the things we've been talking about? Or is there, are there a couple kind of checkpoints where you're like, oh, okay, now that we've got here, or now that this has happened, or now that our processing or cpus or gpus have got to a point where like this we can actually make something here that's different well so again we have this just general observation there's no academic answer mm. that we think that we've hit this critical point for example no one would have said it was exactly 3g in which we hit that critical point but it just so happened that that was good enough the second is if we take a look at the leaders of today companies like epic games or nvidia the seventh largest company on earth They've been working here for 30 years. I talk about the metaverse not being a new idea. They're mm. proof of it. And so if you put that in context, the metaverse is unfolding. We can see this in tech, in habit, in product, in culture. Many of the leaders have been working on it for decades. And so that leads us to believe that if the metaverse is not nigh, the opportunity or the requirement for those who want to lead in it to start, that's here. Right. Who loses? Who stands to lose? I'm just thinking about like, I mean, if you're from, you know, you obviously were at Amazon before thinking about like content. How does that change? Like, how do industries change? Going back to that point that Jensen Wang at NVIDIA said, you know, this is going to be bigger than the economy as we know it today. You know, that's not necessarily zero sum, but some things are going to suffer dramatically, I would guess. And there's going to be massive opportunities elsewhere. So we see five different types of corporate fortunes. The challenging part is, of course, who fits in which bucket. Mm. And by we see five, I mean we can observe it over the past few transitions. The first are the companies which are obliterated. The most obvious example is, of course, Blockbuster. Yep. The second category are companies which survive but languish. They're so far surpassed that nobody cares. Skype still exists, but even Microsoft, which launched Teams, chose not to use the platform, the tech, nor the brand. <laughs> a third example are companies which do port over and grow. Facebook is not of the mobile era, but it's far more valuable because of it. Yes. It would never have reached billions of users. The fourth category are companies which are displaced in classic definition, but grow because of growth in the digital economy. 
Microsoft has never had a smaller share of computer operating systems in market. Mm. They're far, far from the heydays of the early 2000s, but they're far, far more valuable because they have become horizontal. That is to say, they will service every platform, and the digital economy is orders larger than it was. The fifth category are the new entrants, born of a new era. Google last time, TikTok this time. Mm. Who's born tomorrow? The challenging thing is, of course, where do you sit? Some believe that Google is the worst position for the metaverse. But of course, the story from Microsoft is worst positioned where? Yeah. In the classic definition, perhaps. In others, unclear. Right. And the idea is that the, let's call it the metaverse Zuckerberg or the metaverse Spiegel is probably in his mid-teens or something right now. Exactly. Right, right. Before I let you go, um, I know we're a little bit over time, but I just want to ask you briefly about um, the streaming wars. Really interesting right now. And I know this is like not, you, you, you spent uh, some time working on that coalface. Um, would love to get your view, especially around Netflix. I mean, it's um, it was a pandemic stock that has taken a dive along with many others. But it is quite stunning just how far and how how dramatically it has fallen. So I actually think that it's a positive story. Amazon, or rather Netflix, mm. is an incredible example of achievement. That's obvious. They remain far larger than their closest competitor. Their revenue per user is three times larger. First mover advantages matter. Scale matters. Technology matters. Scale of spending matters. And yet at the end of the day, Netflix is selling entertainment. It's selling access to content. And it seems that over the past several years, the rest of the world has become better at what they do relative to Netflix's ability to get good at what their competitors do. And that's content. In some regard, it's remarkable that Netflix has not become much better at making content. In some measures, they've become worse mm. since 2016, 2018. Why? Because tens of billions have gone out the door since. And I find it, again, reassuring that that matters. Otherwise, content is just commodity. It's who has the tech platform that wins in entertainment. Right. And lastly, before I let you go, I think it was really interesting that you, in the, in the book, you draw out the example of Microsoft and how, you know, they saw the changes coming, right, around the dawn of the internet and mobile. And they had all the resources in the world and they still got it wrong, which I just think is fascinating. When you, again, going back to the, the, the meta example of, I mean, they're, you know, Zuckerberg's taking this massive swing and it, the metaverse may turn out to be something entirely different than what they're trying to construct. No, you're, you're quite right. I like to remind everyone that we're still at the thesis stage. Mm. When you take a look at Microsoft's failure, we often laugh at this video from January 2017, and that's Steve Ballmer asked about the iPhone. <laughs> and oh, 2007, I think, when he was. 2007, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people often cut the clip where he just laughs at it and says, $500 on a plan without a keyboard? And it is funny. Yes, it is funny. But the rest of his quote is a little bit more measured. He says, look, the phone may do well and good, but we believe that to be successful, you need a keyboard. We believe that you need to focus on business, not consumer. 
they believe that the optimal price point is $200, not $500. They also believed that the smartphone was going to be a secondary computing device, not a primary one for most people on earth. If they had just gotten some of those theses wrong, and there was another, they believed that the monetization model was selling your operating system. That's what we used to do with Windows. Not advertising, not data collection, not app stores or hardware. If they had gotten some of those theses wrong, we might still have Windows Phone today. But they got all of them wrong. And again, that's reassuring. Cash, conviction, talent, a head start. They weren't enough. Yeah, yeah. Lastly, before I let you go, what the uh, what should we be worried about? You know, because I, if we've learned anything in these recent years, it's that tech, for all the wonderful things it can do, it also can just exacerbate, you know, the worst parts of society or exaggerate kind of some of the, the things that are, you know, happening out in the in society, in the world, etc. When we think about building a parallel world, what are the blind spots and do... Are the right people thinking about those blind spots now from what you've seen? So it's a good question. Look, what's the threat? The threat is that there are many problems with the internet today. Data rights, data security, data literacy, platform power, platform regulation, toxicity, abuse, harassment, happiness, the role of algorithms, mis- and disinformation. Listeners might be terrified by how quickly I rattled off so many problems. (laughs) And... The metaverse will make all of those worse because it means more of society goes online for more important things. Mm -hmm. We can be terrified about that. The thing that I find important and is part of the reason why I wrote this book is we have an opportunity to change that. We've discussed who wins and who loses, the general arc of companies from one era to another. And that means that we as developers, users, consumers, voters, governments, regulators can affect What's different about the next internet? It's hard to make changes intra-cycle. Yes. But change is a feature of cycle changes. Yeah. And lastly, I know I keep saying lastly, but this is my last one. As an investor today, 2022, you know, because we have a lot of listeners who are in the tech world, founders, etc. You know, everybody's talking and thinking about the metaverse in one way or the other, or they're dismissing it, whatever it may be. How does one think about actually trying to get involved either as an investor, a founder, whatever it may be, in a meaningful way if this is indeed the kind of the next iteration of computing? It's a good question. I think, look, if we take a look at the history of major leaps, they tend not to come from explicit efforts to build the next thing. Yeah. Facebook became the world's largest identity system on the internet. Many tried that before. Microsoft tried this before. The .NET framework. And what was the way to do it? It was to build a college hot or not. (laughs) When you take a look at Epic Games metaverse strategy, it's kind of architected around a battle royale shooter game. And even that was a spinoff of the original game that they thought was going to work and didn't really. Yeah. It's rarely possible to just go build the future as you see it, because there's more organic evolution around it. It's kind of like saying, I'm just going to build the world's nicest mall. Well, location matters. Competition matters. Who you put in your store, the community that you're based in, those all matter. The art of the design matters, the time and place, you know, philosophically speaking. Yes. And so for founders, look, I don't think that there's a clear roadmap. I tend to bet that more things will change than say the same. 
we talked about dating earlier, but it's inspiring. It's easy to look at the biggest companies and assume that they will reign supreme. That's not the arc of time. No. And it feels like if, at least if you're helping build the picks and shovels for that feels like a, a, a potentially productive way to go about it is kind of not try to kind of boil the ocean, but like, okay, well, let me see if I can figure out a way to help kind of catalyze the revolution, so to speak. Absolutely. Well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know I've taken more than um, than was originally intended. It's my pleasure. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Matthew for taking the time to sit down. He had a bit of an issue with his dog, but we made it work. And I appreciate him for that. So uh, thank you guys all for listening and for the ratings and for the reviews and spreading the word, telling your friends and neighbors about the podcast. It really does help spread the word. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is it for me this week. Um, I don't think I'll be writing about the metaverse this week. You know, the world is kind of falling apart with all things crypto and technology and Twitter and Elon Musk and everything else. So I'm kind of tied up with you know, running around lots of different directions, but you can follow me on the Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Let me know if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, comments, whatever it may be. So that is it for me this week. Thank you again for listening, and I will talk to you very soon. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.